It's go time. Welcome, everyone, to Third Down Gamble. Don Charbon, along with Heath Graham, and Pat Mooney is back with us today, and that's awesome. Pat, it's been a couple weeks. We've uh, gone sort of as a duo without you. How are you feeling back there? I'm thinking you guys are doing an incredible job. I'm I'm feeling well. It's nice to uh, be in person trying this for the first time. So, First and foremost, uh, news of the week. We have nowhere to look but Regina. Incident involving Garrett Marino, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Four-game suspension for Garrett Marino. I like the way the league has kind of split up the infractions to equal three separate suspensions. I would generally like to see more for the hit on Jeremiah Mazzoli, but I think four games is about as much as we could expect from the CFL given precedent and what's been done in the past. He is a repeat offender, so I'm sure that has played into it a little bit. And certainly the hardest part for me to watch was not only seeing Jeremiah Mazzoli down on the field, but seeing the the celebrations by Garrett Marino afterwards. It was despicable, actually, watching that. Uh, that is not sportsmanship, and that's not what I think anyone in the CFL wants to represent when you see something like that. Watching from where I was on the sideline, you could see right down to where the rider bench, and you could see Marino as he came off the field starting to flex, and then the rider bench kind of putting up a bit of a wall around him because the Ottawa Red Blacks were fuming, and they were coming across the field, and I mean streaming across the field to get at him. I doubt if there were five players left on that Ottawa bench. Interestingly, the two people that were with Mazzoli, other than medical staff, were Larry Dean and eventually Cody Fajardo, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. They were the two people that went to check in on Mazzoli as he lay on the ground. What Marino did has no place in football. The showboating, the grandstanding, the whatever you want to call it, after you've injured a player, that's not behavior that I can ever tolerate under any circumstance. This is a tough enough game. Players get hurt for a number of reasons. One need not celebrate the fact that Mazzoli was down. All I can hope is that Mazzoli's injury is nowhere near as first feared and that he will be back on the field sooner than later. I do not want to see this as a career ender. It's one thing to celebrate a sack or a big defensive play But oftentimes, even when that happens, once there's a realization that the player impacted is injured, the celebration stops. And what we saw from Garrett Marino was after the ball was released, it was a late and low hit. So it didn't really affect the play. It wasn't a sack. It wasn't a forced fumble. He didn't cause the incompletion by the hit. And you could see from Jeremiah Mazzoli's reaction immediately that he was injured. So for Garrett Marino to carry on the way he did is completely unjustified and inexcusable. After the game, watching the highlight where we see Marino actually go in and and basically tackle the offensive lineman from behind um, the play previous, and then he was pulled off for a couple plays and back in. I mean, it's clear he is not necessarily in control of those emotions, and it was targeted. He's only been in the league for 12 games, and we see a pattern of behavior already that indicates that he's not being respectful of opponents. And there is no place for that in the league. These men have families. They're trying to make a living. And when you're trying to intentionally injure someone, which it certainly appears 
was the case here. The play to which you refer happens at about the 7.20 mark of the uh, quarter where Marino does tackle an offensive lineman. The weird thing was it was called holding on the play, defensive holding. Marino is sent to the bench, and he is on the bench for six plays. Comes back on the field, and then he gets his opportunity to play again and immediately goes around low. He did get a little bit of a shove from behind, but I don't think that impacted his direction of travel. And he hit Mazzoli between the knees and the ankles. When you're planting to throw, something's got to give when you're hit like that. Dino Boyd was the offensive lineman for Ottawa that was impacted on that play. He was penalized earlier in the game for unnecessary roughness and a, a injury-causing hit as well. So we, we have to take that into consideration a little bit, but it certainly doesn't condone the retaliation that Garrett Marino tried to dish out. Well, and the retaliation was, as, as pointed out, not just once, but twice. I mean, he held on to it for a period of time, six plays in between, Don. That, that, that to me, it tells me he's not in control of his emotions and he's intentionally going out to get retribution on a play that was penalized. And that's the point that I guess is lost in all of us is that Dino Boyd was penalized. Looking at the replay and looking what he did to Pete Robertson, it was an unfair play without a doubt, but compare the two. The only thing that I would say is yes, in that play, yes. But if you look at Daryl Sankey put out a tweet where he actually shows where Boyd also hit them in the back beyond the play once or twice. So, I mean, Boyd was certainly aggressive himself. The CFL hasn't made any rulings on that. There was a penalty on the play, which maybe that's why they're not looking at this point at supplemental discipline. But I think that does have to factor in as well. You know, the refs did did call penalties on Marino's and Boyd's play. I think had they maybe moved a little bit more or seen some of the other things, the frustrations maybe wouldn't have come out on Saskatchewan's side. But that does not excuse Marino's actions in any way, shape, or form. And to be fair to them, I would think that originally it would have been a 15-yard foul against Marino, possibly, maybe I'm wrong, and then the aggravating circumstance is the way he grandstanded after the play, and he continued to grandstand, and the officials saw fit to say, okay, that's enough, you're out of here. And it's a fine line between a 15 and a 25. Where does this leave the Saskatchewan Rough Riders after this four-game suspension? Do they continue to take a chance on Garrett Marino, or are they evaluating as a club some personnel decisions? Listening to the head coach, there is little doubt that Marino is going to be a member of the team after this suspension. The belief system, even expounded upon by Larry Dean, who's one of the captains of the defense, is that they want to bring Marino along to the right way of doing things in their phraseology. If they feel that they can help him make better choices, I give him credit for that. Now, one of the things that Dickens said in his press conference of Tuesday was that we can't really malign somebody for one bad mistake. The other side of the coin is if Marino was a marginal player with the team and maybe his status with the team wasn't that great, would they be saying the same thing or would he have been given the heave-ho? And we're also talking about a 12-game CFL career now with multiple suspensions and multiple fines. 
Coach Dickinson can talk about one poor decision, but there have been several instances so far and the compounding bad decisions on this particular night of the attack on Dino Boyd, the hit on Jeremiah Mazzoli, the grandstanding, even the, the, the celebrating and helmet waving as he's being escorted off the field. There's more than one bad decision just in a five-minute span. Emotions aside, at some point you have to take stock of your situation, and that type of behavior is the type of behavior that the CFL, I'm certain, does not want to see. Marino, whether he appeals, he may appeal on the one-game suspension for questions around Mazzoli's heritage. Let's consider diversity, too. If the allegations of what he said are true, let's think about diversity in this league as well. Beyond that, to his credit, Greg Dickinson said that regardless if he appeals or not, Marino is not making the trip to Halifax to play the Argonauts. And I do wonder if Saskatchewan's going to have further supplemental discipline within the team itself, right? He's losing his four games. He's going to lose the pay for the four games. In a short season, that's significant for a player as well. So, I mean, if he if he is out for four games, uh, I think Saskatchewan holds on to him this time at this point. I think if he continues this pattern of behavior beyond this, then I think it behooves both the Saskatchewan Rough Riders and the league to look at. If it's about player safety, the answer has to be no. The Arbuckle sweepstakes seem to be over for a little while, as Nick Arbuckle now has found his way, ironically, back to Ottawa, the team with whom he signed as a free agent in the first place when he left Calgary. This time he may actually get to suit up for the Ottawa Red Blacks. We did not see that previously because of the cancelled season and Toronto and Ottawa deciding different directions for quarterbacks. He bounced around a little bit, but is back in Ottawa. Given the injury to Jeremiah Mazzoli, Ottawa was going to have to do something. We did see some development in the progression of Caleb Evans last season and into this season. Obviously, they don't quite feel comfortable enough yet for him to be their number one guy. So bringing in someone with with the game experience of Nick Arbuckle can't hurt. He's not a lengthy veteran of the CFL by any means, but he certainly led Calgary's offense quite well when he was there. He did win the one game against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers last year, let's not forget, when he was with the Toronto Argonauts as well. So he's got some pedigree there. He does. It's it's limited pedigree, and I do question whether he can pick up his play to be such that he's not the guy that's bouncing around. Because to this point, he has bounced around the league and, and people just don't seem to have a lot of confidence in him. Yet in the right situation, as you alluded to, Heath, in Calgary, he had some outstanding games and he looked like he was going to be an up-and-comer in the CFL. Yet that has not transpired into him locking down that starter position and the confidence of his coaches to date. Some quarterbacks are a product of their system. And if Arbuckle lands in Ottawa and has the right system to play within, that may generate a longer career for him. Because clearly in Edmonton, what they were doing didn't suit his skill set. And it's not a, a discredit to Stephen McAdoo or what the Edmonton coaching philosophy was but I think from the word go, him going to Edmonton was a very, very tenuous situation because, let's face it, he didn't even suit up last year 
and Edmonton needed somebody to relieve Taylor Cornelius at some point during that stretch where they played three and seven, and it didn't uh, happen. And one wonders why. And then when Jones gets introduced as the head coach and Stephen McAdoo is offensive coordinator, they don't even mention Arbuckle in the press conference. I hope this is an opportunity for Nick Arbuckle to kind of rejuvenate his career. One thing he does have going for him is a pretty talented receiving core in Ottawa with Jalen Acklin, Darvin Adams, Nate Bahar, etc. He's He's got some weapons there, and if given the opportunity, the offensive line seems much improved for the Red Blacks this year as well, and this might be just what he needs to kind of get things rekindled. I think for the Ottawa Red Blacks, bringing Nick Arbuckle in is, is a good step because Mazzoli was going to be the guy who's going to lead them forward. And they've spent a lot of money on free agents this year. So it is a win-now situation to take one or two years to develop a quarterback like Caleb Evans further may not be in the cards for them right now. They've spent a lot of money. They need to produce now. And I think Nick Arbuckle gives them that opportunity if he can fit into the offense. Marcel Desjardins was the GM at the time when Arbuckle wanted to renegotiate his contract and Desjardins said no and cut him loose and he found his way over to Toronto. This is a new regime now, at least in the upper management, that he's being brought back by. Given that he has a pretty good offensive coordinator as head coach, I kind of think this is the last stop for him. It's either here or you're out of the league. And I hate to say that because Arbuckle is a really nice guy, really caring soul, but he's not measured on that. He's measured on... W's and completions and touchdowns. With what Ottawa has invested in Jeremiah Mazzoli, what does the future of Nick Arbuckle look like in Ottawa? I mean, if he comes in now, leads them into a playoff spot, maybe a playoff win, do they go back to Mazzoli as their number one guy and maybe Nick Arbuckle's on the move again, but at least with some more game film and, and some more positive things? Arbuckle has to play well. I agree with what you say, Don. I think he's had lots of opportunities in different organizations and he's yet to really grasp that opportunity and build on the success he had initially in a short time with Calgary. I think he's one that that does have to put some good tape out there. I do think if I'm Ottawa, I'm going to stick with Jeremiah Masoli. He was the guy that they chose, but Masoli is also getting up in years, if they could go with a, a two-headed quarterback, if Arbuckle does very well and have both options similar to what Hamilton had in the past, that might be a good situation for Ottawa. We briefly touched on Caleb Evans, but where is his head at, given all of this happening around him? He sees Mazzoli goes down. He, somewhere he's got to start thinking that I'm going to be the starter of note until Mazzoli comes back and immediately a trade is made. I understand Ottawa needs to win now. They did, as you indicated, spend a lot of money in free agency in the offseason. They loaded up on the defense especially. It's the offense that struggles, and if you don't put it together, is Paul Lapolice the next coach to go before the end of the season? This week will be telling for the future of Caleb Evans as well. He's likely to be the starting quarterback. I don't believe that Nick Arbuckle will have time to get fully up to speed on what's happening. So if Caleb Evans goes out and performs and pulls out a win against the Hamilton Tiger Cats this week, he probably buys a second start and he can kind of build his future from there. 
unfortunately for him, the leash might not be super long. And as soon as he starts to struggle, it might be time to give Arbuckle the chance. But certainly this week and, and probably next week is his opportunity to step up. I would not want to see that situation that you say with a short leash. We saw that in Edmonton, and I, I look at Edmonton's quarterback situation now that they've dealt our buckle. What, what quarterback is not going to be looking over his shoulder with Chris Jones standing behind saying, okay, the next guy's in, the next guy's in. Uh, boy, that's going to be ugly. Chris Jones is tougher on quarterbacks than Mike Keenan was on goaltenders. Second down. Only three games in the CFL last week. Each one had a storyline that is worth talking about. We've already discussed mightily the Saskatchewan-Ottawa, as it was called, tainted victory. Let's start the week, though, with what the CFL did, and that was Thursday night in Edmonton as the Stampeders and the Elks went at it, and a huge thunderstorm rolls through, 65-minute delay, doesn't seem to change anything. The Stampeders who were leading before the storm broke actually piled it on after the storm broke and go on to win 49-6. to I, I don't think I was quite as surprised with the win, but certainly the, the, the way they came out and dominated was a little surprising. Edmonton seemed to be making some gains, and this was a step backward for Edmonton. A couple of injuries to two quarterbacks forcing them to go to Arbuckle in between a few times, definitely impacted their success as well. Tough break for Trey Ford. We discussed him at length in last week's episode as the future starting quarterback of the Edmonton Elks, and unfortunately that seems to have been cut short. He will be out of commission for a few weeks after taking a hit to his throwing arm. He only had three pass attempts, completing two of those, uh, one of them for a 46-yard play, so it was a promising start cut short for Trey Ford. The number one thing that I hate what offensive coordinators do with quarterbacks, and that's make them into a called runner. And we see what happens if it doesn't go right. The collarbone is most likely where he was injured with the shot to the back, but it was a called quarterback draw. I don't understand it. You've got two running backs under contract. You have five or six receivers on the field, why does the quarterback have to run the football? If he goes down, and I trust this had a huge impact on the Elks, their leader goes down, and they start to second-guess how are we going to win this. Well, I think that was the case here. Once he went down, I mean, Kai Loxley steps in. He's not maybe as prepared. He didn't have the first-team reps. He did well still getting five of seven, 71% completion. But then when he got injured and uh, we saw Nick Arbuckle step in with limited success between both quarterbacks, uh, took their sails out. And I think Calgary's offensive dominance also made it extremely hard for Edmonton to get any momentum going whatsoever. It certainly did. And this was a classic Bolivai Mitchell game, 77% completion rate, two touchdowns, no interceptions pretty much took the entire fourth quarter off because they had such a big lead. And all Jake Mayer did was come in and go four for four for 26 yards. So a really good night for Calgary quarterbacks and a tough, tough night for Edmonton quarterbacks. And as we saw, it was the last game for Nick Arbuckle in an Elks uniform. Peyton Logan for the Stampeders returned a missed field goal, 122 yards for a touchdown. Near the end of the play... 
Jonathan Moxie is running step for step with an Elks defender, and Moxie does his best to get in front and just nudge him. He doesn't block from the rear, he doesn't grab him, doesn't do anything, and that allows the touchdown to stand. And even last week with Tyson Philpot for the Montreal Alouettes, doing something very similar, a lot of hustle, getting down the field, and a very smart play for a, a rookie as well. It really heads up on that special teams. You see countless times somebody get excited and caught up in the moment and give a guy a shove in the back, and that's the end of that touchdown return. Very, very smart plays in both of these cases to get in front and cause enough disturbance to allow your returner to do what he does best. Cameron Judge got a defensive touchdown for the Stampeders as well as they piled it on in that fourth quarter. It was stunning to me how Calgary continued their dominance after the break. Sometimes storms give you a chance to reset. Fascinating to me that Calgary just literally didn't miss a step and rolled up 49 points on a defense whose leader is Chris Jones, a man who is widely regarded as one of the best defensive minds in football, let alone the CFL. Calgary puts up 470 yards on that. BC put up 59 points and over 500 yards against that defense on opening week. They certainly don't seem to be playing up to what we might call the Chris Jones standard to this point, and I think that may be at this point, a lack of athletes. Uh, Chris Jones is bringing people in. The, the turnstiles are open, and we just keep seeming to add new people every week and roll through. It was a disappointing crowd in Edmonton, but but I can understand why, because it's hard to relate to some of these players when you've got a turnstile working through everyone and taking a look, and it seems like Chris Jones is going to play out this year to determine who could be on the team next year almost. It's almost like an 18-game training camp. The interesting thing, too, after that storm... If you looked up in the stands, you saw more red than green. Any second thoughts for Kenny Lawler yet at this point? He left a two-time Grey Cup champion Winnipeg Blue Bombers, turned down a pretty lucrative offer by the BC Lions, and we're seeing what they're doing on offense. Kenny Lawler on this night targeted five times, two receptions for seven yards. And the week prior, he hardly had anything either. Most of his yards have come against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Uh, outside of that, he, he's got to be having some second guessing because now who's his quarterback moving forward? Is he going to get him the ball? How much cachet does does Chris Jones have? He's got a five-year deal. You can't fire him because you're already paying a GM, a president, and a head coach from the previous year still. Something's got to start to change. And I don't think changing the players on the field is always the answer. What happened to the old adage of put them out there and coach them up. There has to be enough talent on that field. I don't understand why there's that disconnect. We saw them struggle last year. They made the coaching and management changes, but sometimes you just have to blow things up and start over. And it looks almost like that's the the spot that Chris Jones is in right now. We saw Ottawa just about completely turn over their roster last year. It hasn't come to fruition for any wins for the Ottawa Ottawa Red Blacks yet this season. Maybe a similar house cleaning is in order for the Elks. What is the point of training camp? Why do you have training camp? Friday night in Regina, the Ottawa Red Blacks, no wins 
up to that point, leave Regina with the same record of no wins, losing 28-13 to to the Saskatchewan Roughriders. Jeremiah Mazzoli, while in the game, was 19-27 of for 210 yards, a touchdown and an interception. Cody Fajardo, 17-22 of for a 231. Fajardo, of course, on a sore knee. That's limited to his mobility. We saw the Saskatchewan Roughriders continue to have a fairly dominant running game, and the big play was by uh, Frankie Hickson, who ran up the middle. And I was really impressed with the new tackle that they brought in to replace Taryn Vaughn. Andrew Lauderdale, he got upfield and made, I thought, an outstanding block to get in front of one of the last players that kind of freed him to get to the outside. And what amazing speed from Hickson to be able to take that to the house. A really promising running game for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. We saw Jamal Morrow also looking pretty good out there. One other player actually on defense that I want to point out for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders is Larry Dean. He had a phenomenal game, nine tackles and an interception. And to see him overcome what he went through last season with the Achilles injury, missing the entire season, I can't help but feel great to see somebody come back from an injury and have that kind of success. William Powell with the Ottawa Red Blacks again, 11 carries again, 58 yards. He's averaging five yards a carry. If he would get the ball more, he'd be crossing that century mark. But Ottawa seems to go away from the run fairly early in games and wind up struggling to get him the ball later. Uh, lots of offense in this game, 412 yards by the Rough Riders, 340 by the Red Blacks. When Caleb Evans stepped into this game, I thought, Jeremiah Masoli had been taking the team down the field very well. I thought he was going to likely score a touchdown and bring them within eight points. And and yet Caleb Evans, when he came on, did not seem to have any success whatsoever. You know, is that a lack of practice or is that just he wasn't prepared or he's not that good? Is that why he's the backup? Six pass attempts and one interception and a great play by Nick Marshall. All that guy does is, is intercept the football, it seems. And he was in the right spot at the right time, taking away a scoring opportunity for the Red Blacks to get back in the game. The final game of the weekend was the undefeated showdown, Winnipeg and British Columbia. The Bombers start with Janarian Grant going down the field and scoring a touchdown on the opening kickoff. And from there, the Blue Bombers can almost do no wrong and win going away, 43-22. to I was expecting a much better game than we got here. I thought this was going to be a... a a knock out offensive show, but Winnipeg was extremely dominant in this game. It's the first game I've seen them play like I thought they could play earlier this year. It seems to me that the games they've played before have been squeakers, that they just haven't really dominated. But they came into this game with some comments by Marcus Sales talking about the offense being vanilla. It certainly was anything but in this game. Zach Caleros was outstanding in this game. He, he was the Zach Caleros of 2014. He was moving. He was throwing from awkward angles. He looked like an all-star in this game. He did. There's been a lot of talk earlier in the season about him being still the best quarterback in the league. The stats weren't quite there to show it, but this game was the one that it was classic Zach Caleros. 23 for 30, 76 percent completion rate 288 yards three touchdowns zero interceptions and one diving sidearm completion as well so a great night for Zach Caleros Nathan Rourke didn't have a bad night necessarily 16 for 25 278 three touchdowns but two interceptions 
As I mentioned in last week's show, for Winnipeg to have a chance at shutting down Nathan Rourke, I said he's not the the tallest quarterback by any means. Jackson Jeffcoat and Willie Jefferson and those long arms were wreaking havoc on him all night. A couple of key pass knockdowns and a big interception for Jeffcoat. Absolutely. Winnipeg's defense has been the strength of their team for the last couple of years, and they certainly showed that again on the back of an offensive performance that was outstanding with Zach Caleros, as has been mentioned, when he made some throws uh, reversing and getting out of trouble a number of times, he seemed to be extremely elusive, and he was able to have a real connection, I thought, with Dalton Schoen. Uh, We've seen that now in a few games, and, and that connection is one of the most exciting to watch in the CFL. With Winnipeg's win, they remain undefeated and on top of the CFL. The Blue Bombers almost made a statement to BC that you may think you're good, we know we are. The one area of concern for Winnipeg in this one has to be some of the defensive secondary. BC's points came off of big play, home run type touchdown passes. And that's something that Winnipeg's going to need to clean up. We saw Winston Rose get burned once again on a, on a long play. He wasn't the only one. And that is the area of concern for the Bombers. One more area I might bring up is in field goal kicking. We started to see Mark Leggio, who went three for three on his first ones, but after he hit the post on his fourth, his fifth one also wasn't successful. Third down. Four games in the CFL for week six in the schedule, and it all starts on Thursday with the Edmonton Elks, going into Montreal to take on the Alouettes. The Alouettes, one of the three teams on by. And, of course, Danny Machochin is the head coach of the Montreal Alouettes, and he faces the only other team he was a head coach of, and that being Edmonton. I think this will be a good game for Montreal to show where they're at. Um, Coming up against Edmonton, a team that's been struggling, we should be able to see what Montreal can do and wonder with the bye if Machochin's putting in any wrinkles on offense and more specifically on defense where they switch coordinators. Edmonton seems to be trending the wrong way quickly and getting back into that territory where they were last season, unfortunately. I believe that Montreal is going to be a bit more invigorated with their new coach and Danny Machocha. This one is Montreal's big. I have to agree with you. I think Montreal is going to win and they'll cover the spread. Chandler Worthy has an opportunity to do something that's never been done, and that is run kickoffs back for touchdowns in three consecutive games. He has two in a row. He has an opportunity against Edmonton to do it for a third time, and that would be something special if that could happen. The Alouettes at home, they are somewhere between seven and a half and eight point favorites. That's Taylor Cornelius will be starting at quarterback for the Elks. He hasn't started since the end of the last season. Kai Loxley may be his backup. We don't know yet. Trey Ford, we do know, will not be available. Edmonton is hurting. Whether or not they can put it together against the Alouettes is a whole other question. If Edmonton finds a way to answer the problems that they've been having, This could be a very interesting game. And I'm surprised, actually, that Montreal is such a favorite. Given that they've had their offensive coordinator, now Anthony Calvillo, just be named, given that Danny Machocha is the new head coach, and given that they have a new defensive coordinator in Noel Thorpe, that's a lot of change and only a few practices. 
the Alouettes are going to be invigorated or they're going to be looking over their shoulder. And if it's the latter, Edmonton is in far better shape in this football game. After having said all that, I'm going to lean to the home team and pick the Alouettes to cover. It's got to be pretty rare for a one-win team to be a seven-and-a-half-point favorite in any game, but it's the home field advantage that is pushing them in that direction. Friday night, another massive showdown in the West. Undefeated Calgary Stampeders take their road show to Winnipeg to take on the Blue Bombers, who haven't lost at home since 2019. And that was to the Hamilton Tiger Cats in September of that year. Calgary was the one team last year with Jake Mayer at quarterback that came closest to really taking it to the Bombers and winning, but a last play field goal came short. Do the Stampeders have enough with Bo Levi Mitchell at the helm to upset the Blue Bombers at home? Winnipeg is a minus four favorite. This is a couple of veteran star quarterbacks going head to head. Four and a half point spread is a reasonable amount for Calgary to beat. However, with that performance from Winnipeg last week, on the road, I think they turn it around this week and bring that energy back home and do beat the Calgary Stampeders. And I'm going to pick them to cover that spread. I think they win it by more than five points. Winnipeg had a decisive win against BC team that looked like their offense was clicking on all cylinders. Calgary, I think, is a much improved team over last year, but I think we're catching Winnipeg at a tough time in the fact that they just seem to have gotten into a bit of a groove. And I agree with you, Heath. I think that Winnipeg will be able to take this, and I do believe they should cover this as well. I think it will be close. My guess would be to be in the 7-10 to 10 point range, but I think Winnipeg should be able to win at home again. These are the two titans in the West if you look back at the last five years. The Stampeders and the Blue Bombers have been the teams from the West winning Grey Cups. This is a big showdown. Winnipeg at plus four, it shows a lot of respect for the Stampeders on the road in Winnipeg. I'm going to pick the upset, and I'm going to go with Calgary. Bo Levi Mitchell has just enough in him to gut it out and figure out a way to beat this Winnipeg defense. He never quits on anything, and this is one of those games where Winnipeg is going to throw a lot at you, and you need that type of stamina to withstand it. Saturday, touchdown Atlantic. Sold out within an hour when tickets were announced. Raymond Field in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. It's the very first time that the touchdown Atlantic will be played in Nova Scotia. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders are in town, taking on the hometown Toronto Argonauts. The Argonauts are veterans of touchdown Atlantic contests. Two things at play here. Number one, the Riders, of course, came through a very emotional victory over Ottawa. Toronto, they, of course, last lost to Winnipeg on a missed convert. They've had time off. Saskatchewan is going three time zones east to play this game. Toronto only one. And when we look at Saskatchewan's last foray down to the east, they didn't play very well against Montreal. The one thing that I think favors Saskatchewan is neutral site in this game, but I do think that there's likely to be more Toronto fans than Saskatchewan fans. 
yet Saskatchewan, as you mentioned, Don, had an emotional win. I think the loss of Pete Robertson, as well as the team standing behind, but yet still chastising Marino, I think will bode well for them to pull together and come out strong. In this case, I do think Saskatchewan's going to win, and I do believe they'll cover as well. It's so hard to figure out what McLeod Bethel-Thompson is going to do. If he is hot off the start, the Riders will be trounced the way Montreal did it a few weeks ago. If he is not, and the longer the Riders stay in the game, given the fact that they're missing two defensive linemen in this game, the Rough Riders are playing at noon their local time, relatively speaking. They're up against it. I, I lean towards Toronto winning and covering. The spread is only two points. It's not much. Cody Fajardo is establishing himself as a winner as far as a quarterback. Maybe not the most flashiest on a lot of nights, but he has that potential. I think it, uh, maybe a step behind Bo Levi Mitchell and Zach Kolaris at this point, but he finds a way to win. Toronto gave Winnipeg everything that they could handle two weeks ago. The Bombers still came out with a victory. I believe in this one, it's going to be a similar result where Saskatchewan ekes out a victory and it's going to be a a one-point game, maybe a last-second field goal, maybe a missed field goal to go in the other way, but it's going to be that close. Later Saturday afternoon, it's the Hamilton Tiger Cats and the Ottawa Red Blacks, a battle of winless teams. Who'd have thought we'd be saying that about either or both at this point in the season? Don't know who's going to be the starting quarterback for the Tiger Cats. It might be Dane Evans. It might be Matthew Schiltz. That decision will be made closer to game time. Ottawa has to go with Caleb Evans. Hamilton is a 6.5-point favorite. At home, got to think that Hamilton can beat their uh, provincial rival. This is two teams in a bit of turmoil early in the season, both still looking for their first win, both facing some quarterback questions. We saw Dane Evans have a near breakdown in his last start, a crushing defeat for him, so it'll be a big test to see how he bounces back. On the other side, we know Jeremiah Mazzoli is out. Caleb Evans, the likely starter in this one. Hamilton's also in some kicking turmoil. They've brought in John Ryan to take over punting duties and a new place kicker as well. Some question marks in Hamilton as to what they're doing personnel-wise right now. This one is the is the sneaky upset of the week. I think the Ottawa Red Blacks pull it together and hand Hamilton another loss. This game has been the most difficult one for me to pick this week because I have gone back and forth between the two teams based on all the things that he just outlined. I still am not 100% sure who I want to pick because Hamilton has just found ways to lose throughout the course of this season. And Ottawa, after losing a quarterback, may be a bit galvanized. I, I do think Ottawa has the potential to come back and yet Hamilton had a week off may have had an opportunity to make some corrections. I I need to flip a coin on this one. I I think I'm going to go with Hamilton. I really want to pick Ottawa because I think they could win, but I think I have to go to Hamilton, and I think they won't cover. Of the two teams, Ottawa has looked more impressive in their games 
Hamilton has had leads and blown them. Either one of two things is true. Ottawa is as good as what they were on paper when they signed all those free agents, or Hamilton is the defending Eastern champion, and they're going to play like it. Before we go, Winnipeg is moving the needle on CFL television ratings. The most watched game of the weekend was the Blue Bombers in BC. Over half a million people tuned in to watch that game. Overall, ratings are up. Boating well for the CFL that interest is high. It's great to see when there's a, a marquee matchup of two undefeated teams that it is drawing eyeballs. So I'm curious to see how that translates as another two undefeated teams in Calgary and Winnipeg go head-to-head on Friday Night Football. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again at the Third Down Gamble podcast. Audio worth watching.